Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And we have a lot to get into on tonight's show as we recap the Norfolk Tide season and preview their upcoming playoff series against the Durham Bulls. We're also going to take a look at the organizational pitcher of the year race, the two hurlers who probably are the top contenders right now, and a new award for Jackson Holiday. That's all on tonight's show. But a quick reminder that we are just one week away from our live show at Checker Spot Brewing, which will take place next Monday, October 2nd, beginning at 6.30 p.m. It will be a recap of the Orioles season and a preview of the playoffs. And we're happy to announce that we're going to be joined by another guest, and it's someone who's actually going to be making her first appearance on On the Verge. And I'll let Bob do the honors of announcing this one. Yes, we we should be having Danielle Allentuck, as well as her banner mates, John Mioli and Andy Koska, as well as Connor Newcomb from Lockton Orioles. So it should be a full house, a fun night, plenty of informed people other than what you're used to hearing from us. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. One week away. Yeah, absolutely. Should be a great time. We'll have a little bit more details on that later in this episode, but we're going to dive in with one of the big stories of this week, which is that Jackson Holiday has been named Baseball America's 2023 Minor League Player of the Year. And it comes as a fitting honor for Holiday, who toured through four levels of the minor leagues in his first professional season. The 19-year-old began the year at Delmarva before promotions to Aberdeen, Bowie, and then Norfolk, where he batted a combined 323 with a 941 OPS across those four levels while belting 12 homers driving in 75 and impressively walking 101 times this season. So we've talked a lot about Holiday this year for obvious reasons, just because of how special his season has been. Nick, I'm going to start with you here. I don't think it's terribly surprising to see Holiday win this award, but it reinforces something that we've come to realize over the course of the season, which is that Holiday is probably the, is the top prospect in the game and a big piece of the Orioles' future. Yeah, I think, first of all, uh, it's a whole other discussion here, but I, I know he was named first the Orioles minor league player of the year by Baseball America, and I was thinking about that and thinking, like, how much of a shot does Sammy Basayo have at, at that honor as well? That, that's an interesting conversation, but yeah, Jackson Holiday fully deserved it. And, you know, the one thing about Holiday – he reached we've also talked about how he's kind of reached this gunner henderson level of what else is there to say about this kid uh because he is so good but i was thinking about a little bit today and you know i think all year people kind of had everyone in orioles fandom loves jackson holiday obviously but and it understands how good he is but all year and you've seen people kind of have hesitations in thinking like just how far he would rise in the system 
maybe how quickly he rises through the ranks, you know, questions about the power, questions about his size, questions about his defense. And I think all those are like legitimate concerns about a 19 year old teenager. But this kid is, first of all, he couldn't even check into a Norfolk hotel a couple of weeks ago. There's the possibility that he could be a world series champion. And I'm looking far ahead here, but there is still a possibility that he could be a world series champion before he could legally walk into a bar and, and buy a beer. He wasn't supposed to get out of Sarasota last year, uh, but he ended up in Delmarva walking like 26% of the time in Delmarva. Right? Michael Ice even said he's he's going to spend the rest of the year in Sarasota. He's a young teenager. He blew through that. He keeps defying these expectations and really just like blowing them out of the water. And like next year, the power is going to take off. Yeah, the defense is shaky at times, but so was Gunners as he was coming up through Bowie and Norfolk. And now look at him in the major leagues. He's a future gold glover. I just think it, there's no doubting this kid anymore. And I don't think the Orioles are going to like hold him back and be conservative with him. He's defied every expectation, I think, this year. Reading some articles over at Baseball America that they put out, it sounds like he's defied the Orioles' expectations <laughs> that they had of him. Um, this kid is, is a shining star in this organization. And you look at some of those numbers, you rattled off some of the numbers. They're unbelievable, the walks in particular. But my favorite, uh, we, pull, we like to pull up these stats a lot. Jackson Holiday had two plate appearances all year against pitchers that are younger than him. That's it. So pull up his baseball reference page. And if you look at that Norfolk stat line, you look at one of the first columns, you see negative 7.3. That's the age difference compared to his competition at AAA. This is a kid facing grown men with MLB experience, and he isn't phased. Like this, he fully deserves it. He's without a doubt the top prospect in baseball. Yeah, and I think what he was the first that the Orioles had the first players to win Baseball America's Minor League Baseball Player of the Year award two years in a row. I think the Orioles were also the first to have the number one prospect in baseball three years in a row. Things are different around here, and with Jackson Holiday specifically, I mean, people want to talk about he just needs to bring the power. I mean, again, we've said it a thousand times. There's really not much we haven't said about him so far at this point. But he did have 30 doubles, 9 triples, 12 home runs between four levels. And like uh, like we just said, he was the youngest person on the field, like 99.999% of the time. I like that he walked 17.6% at the other time in AAA, over 91 plate appearances, and had his lowest strikeout rate of the year in AAA, 18.7%. He was a little bit over 20% in double A and A, high A, and then 19.4% in low A. He was 10% uh, better than league average in AAA at 19, and Steamer project his, um, projects him to be right around league average with the bat in the majors right now. They have him at a 24% strikeout rate, 11.2% walk rate, and a 700 OPS. So, yeah, I guess... Could he get to five levels in one year? That could be the next question. Yeah, it would be interesting to ponder. It does feel like a little bit of a long shot at this point that Holiday could reach the Orioles before the end of the season or during the playoffs, but something you can't entirely rule out given how he has risen this year. Just to touch on a point that Bob made, the Orioles are the first organization since Baseball America began doing this award in 1981 to have had two different players win the award in consecutive years, while Greg Jeffries and Andrew Jones both won the award in back-to-back -back years as prospects. No organization has never had two different players win the award in consecutive years, which is kind of hard to fathom when you think about some of the farm systems or some of the organizations that have really had strong farm systems at various points. You know, the Rays and the Dodgers always seem to be in the mix. You go back to the Royals of the early 2010s, I think it's just a real reflection of how elite the Orioles development pipeline has become. And the fact is they were probably very close to having it be three years in a row. If you go back to Adley Brutzman in 2021, when Bobby Wood actually won the award. Yeah, this, I mean, we all look at the numbers, right. And say how amazing this is with Jackson holiday. And there's a, another article. I don't know if you guys saw this one today or not, but JJ Cooper wrote an article for baseball America today about holiday read through this thing. I tried to pull out a lot of the quotes and numbers and everything that JJ Cooper put in here about holiday. They're unbelievable. And uh, it's, it's too much to sit here and read through it all. 
But if you're a subscriber, go check out this article because he touches on everything. How going into January of last year, Holiday wasn't, he was considered like barely a first round draft prospect. He was not considered a number one overall prospect. He's, Cooper says like no one out there was pegging him as a top overall draft pick, but he was. And he kind of looks at, look at the other guys around Holiday and what they've done so far in their career. Drew Jones went number two. He's yet to get out of low A, constantly on the injured list. Kumar Rocker, Tommy John surgery. Tamar Johnson, low A, high A. He reached high A this year. That's it. Hit 244. Elijah Green picked fifth. He struck out 41% of the time as a pro up to this point. And Jacob Berry finished in double A, hit nine home runs with a 233 average. Holiday, there is a real conversation of Holiday being in the major leagues this year. Uh, and just some of the numbers, like he played in 125 games this season across four different levels. He was kept off the bases just nine times. That's it. And two of those games, as Cooper notes in the article, he was 0 for 1 because they were pinch hit appearances. So they they count against him there. But that's it. Nine times in 125 games, they kept this kid off the bases. It's, I mean, just going through. I'm trying to scroll through here as fast as I can and pull out the other stuff. But there are so many, like, mind-numbing numbers. He, he finished fifth in the minors, in all of minor league baseball, fifth in on-base percentage. The four hitters ahead of him were all 25 years or older, as J.J. Cooper writes in this piece. I mean, just, I don't think we can say enough good things about Holiday and what the future holds for this kid. Yeah, and obviously we talk about the Orioles' player development, especially on the hitting side the last few years. But first of all, hats off to just Jackson Holiday, the natural talent, and clearly he's got some uh, growth mindset there to, to put this all together and improve at such a rapid rate. But this is what happens when you combine elite talent with elite player development. <laughs> you get a Jackson Holiday situation. You get a Samuel Besire situation. And as long as this uh, front office is in place, I believe this is potentially just going to keep happening. Um, you know, maybe not every year. It depends on a lot of things going right as well. But so far, so good. Uh, we'll see what happens. But Jackson Holiday. He's playing more second base now. I feel like, you know, you're starting to see Kobe Mayo play more first base now. So you're starting to see guys that could potentially, you know, if there's an injury or maybe the front office is feeling a little frisky and wants to get one of these guys up in the playoffs since there's not really a book out on them. You know, you're starting to see some moves potentially angled to be made over the last week or so of the season. Another note here about Holiday is that he is the fourth player to win both Baseball America's High School Player of the Year award and Minor League Player of the Year. The only other three to have done so are Joe Maurer, Byron Buxton, and Bobby Witt Jr. So congratulations to Jackson Holiday on this very fitting honor. He ended the season at AAA Norfolk, who over the course of this year boasted some of the Orioles' best prospects. You go back to opening day, Grayson Rodriguez was on the mound for the Tides. Jordan Westberg and Colton Calder were part of that lineup. Later in the year, Heston Kerstad and Kobe Mayo would join the team. Connor Norby was there all season and put together an excellent year. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. And we'll just start with a moment, though, on the team's success. Norfolk finished the season 90-59, and 59, and by virtue of winning the first half of the International League, will host the International League Championship Series this week against the Durham Bulls. Honestly, I can't think of a better opponent for the Tides not just because of the Orioles and Rays affiliates squaring up in a playoff matchup, but because we have seen a lot of competitive baseball over the last few years between these two teams. This year, though, it was really not much of a contest in the season series. The Tides went 15-6 and against the Bulls and outscored them 128-86, to a run differential of plus 42. Uh, so, Nick, I'll start with you here. The Tides are your hometown team, and as you know, more than being an Orioles fan, I'm sure that this season was really special for you to see Norfolk play this well this year. Coming into the season, we looked at that roster and on paper thought that it looked like the AAA roster, and it certainly seems like that's how it played out. Yeah, it's it is pretty cool. I'm happy for like the people down in Norfolk because for a lot of if you don't know, I mean, there are the regulars down there that are big Tides fans, and obviously, it's like this for every minor league ballpark. I feel like, but you got the regulars who they don't care who the major league affiliate is; they're going to support their local baseball team. But like Harper Park truly is a, a pretty special place. There's a ton of history at that ballpark, and 
for, for as far as the Orioles are concerned and like the future of the major league team, what we saw in Norfolk this year is a fun taste of like what the future is going to hold. I, I don't necessarily think that winning in the minor leagues necessarily means like it's going to translate to the major leagues. I know some people like argue against that or whatever. I don't think it really does, but you look at some of the records of Norfolk these past couple of years, like 2021, they won 48 games. They haven't been above 500 uh, in a long, long time. So it's it's just a testament to the level of talent in this organization. The Tides were on a heater there for a while where they were putting up 10-plus runs a game every single night. You mentioned the run differential stat. It was astronomical even earlier on in the year. Um, it's good for the people in Norfolk. It's uh, good for the Harbor Park faithful. Uh, but more importantly, it's good for the health of this organization because you look at that AAA roster, and if something happens – and you can turn to a guy like Kyle Stowers, who we may or may not talk about later on. But if you can turn to a guy like Kyle Stowers versus a guy like, you know, Mason Williams, uh, in case if there's an injury or in case of emergency, things are going well uh, for you. Your health, your franchise is healthier, and um, we're seeing the fruits of that labor up there at the major league level already. Are we going to talk about uh, what Kyle Stowers is on pace for? Is that what you were referencing? <laughs> um, no, just fantastic. And, you know, Tides, they were great all year, and that's with losing, you know, Colton Kowser for a stretch, Heston Kerstad now, Jordan Westberg, Joey Ortiz for a little bit here and there. You know, they had guys pulled up to the majors, and, you know, they had Cesar Prieto traded away, Drew Ron traded away, and they just kept winning, and they kept winning. <laughs> There's a ton of talent there. We knew that before, but it's also – it's uh, it's cool to see the results play out on the field, and they'll have a chance to play meaningful championship games this, this week. I think it's a three-game series, Tuesday to Thursday, and then if they win that, they get to face off against the champion on the other side of, of the AAA bracket. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Good experience for them, and you know, extend their seasons, get a few more at-bats, a few more innings pitched. But, yeah, it's been fun all year long. You know, typically AAA is not the first minor league team that we – have tuned in for the past four years or five years since we've been doing this this year it was yeah we're gonna dig a little bit reason a little bit into the reason why tonight and a fitting place to start is probably with the tides lineup as nick mentioned it was not unusual especially early in the year to see the tides put up 10 plus runs in a game and it certainly helped the players like colton Kowser, connor norby and joey ortiz either spent all of or the bulk of their seasons there along with kyle stowers who Battled some injuries this year, but was still very effective at the plate for Norfolk. Looking at that group, it was interesting to see the progression where Norby got off to a little bit of a slow start, caught fire, and honestly may have put together a better year this year than he had last year when he led, I believe he led all the Orioles minor leagues in home runs. Uh, Cowser put together an excellent season, as did Ortiz. And Stowers, particularly over the final weeks of the season, was really picking things up. So, Bob, what in that group jumps out at you it's kobe mayo for me he just continues to be i don't know about underrated but i feel like just not mentioned enough just what he did this year is amazing he started in double a he tore through them with a ops over a thousand and then he goes goes up to triple a he gets a really solid 250 plus plate appearances under his belt he increases his walk rate by another percentage point it was already and it credibly improved 14.7%. Now in AAA, it was 15.7%. And he had an improved strikeout rate in AA at 24.8%. Well, he improved that even more in AAA, 23.2%. So a huge right-handed power hitter who is walking more and striking out less as he goes up a level at 21 years old. He had a 127 WRC+, 905 OPS. He ended up with in AAA, if you combine his AA and AAA numbers, he had 45 doubles, three triples, 29 home runs, and 99 RBI to go with 93 walks. So only eight behind Jackson Holiday's total there with a 290 batting average and a 974 OPS, 156 WRC plus. Just incredible season for an incredible prospect. And now I'm like, uh, the way Gunner's been playing shortstop, he should just be the full time shortstop. I think you go into 2024 with. Kobe Mayo at third and Jackson Holiday at second base. And wow. Yeah, Mayo, I said before the year started, it wasn't a bold take, not taking credit for that at all. But I did say before the year that this was going to be the year that we saw Kobe Mayo's true breakout because 
coming into the year, it was just injury after injury after injury and not necessarily anything super serious on the injury front, but just, you know, the, the back spasms once he, as soon as he got promoted to double a last year, like that's going to linger. Um, so it took him a little bit longer to adjust to double A's, but hamstring injuries, a knee injury or something early on in his career, there are two or three injuries that kept popping up, but the breakout came in a major way. You guys have rattled off some of the numbers, the numbers I like, we know the powers there, right? But the numbers that I like were the walk rates and I should, adding this up earlier but uh in his first two years as a pro kobe mayo had 655 plate appearances and he walked just 69 times so not nice okay but not nice this year uh mayo had 614 plate appearances so what is that 41 fewer plate appearances just this year and he had the 93 walks that's 24 more walks between those two sample sizes that's insane we know he has a crazy power yeah, the, the wall is going to steal some home runs when he gets up to Baltimore. We know that. But at the same time, I'd really love to look at his like spray chart and see just how many of his home runs in AAA this year and AA would have been kind of eaten by that left field wall at Camden Yards because I don't think it'd be a ton. Um, you know, He confirmed that the power is insane, but the best part of his season, in my opinion, were those walks and that OPS just shy of 1,000 for the year. Yeah, I go back to when we had Ryan Ripken on a few weeks ago, and Ryan made what is an accurate point that Kobe Mayo has BP power in game. Uh, the, just some of the home runs he hit are, you know, true tape measure shots. There was one I remember he hit at Jacksonville. The only thing stopping it was the left field video board. He had another one in Wooster a few weeks after that that I think was recorded somewhere just shy of 460 feet out to left field. So, if you want to find a right-handed, pool-hitting power prospect in the Orioles' farm system that probably isn't going to be affected by the wall or isn't going to be affected by the wall that much, it's Mayo because of the kind of power that he has. And one of the things that I really liked about his season is the fact that he ended on a real high note. You look at his numbers in the month of September, uh, 99 plate appearances across 21 games. Batted 333 was a 1064 OPS. You might hear that and think that that was his best month, and it actually wasn't because in June when he was at Bowie, he hit 340 was an 1178 OPS in eight homers in 26 games. Uh, so he's just, you know, I think throughout the year was just so consistent. He was hitting the ball hard early at Bowie. The power really ticked up in May and June. He went to AAA, and the power stayed with him despite the climb in level and moving into a tougher hitters park at Norfolk as compared to Bowie. So all of those things really fell into place for him. And I, I'm glad now that nationally he's getting more recognition, but there's definitely more plaudits heading his way before he gets to the major leagues, I think. And also I feel like his defense improved and in de- developed this year as well. I think he's a very solid third baseman at the major league level. You know, I, I think he could definitely stick there. You know, I've been in my head thinking, yeah, he could spend some time between third base, right field, first base. Now I, I still think that's a possibility, but more and more I'm like, let's just sit him at third base, gunner at short, and let's go. Let's go with the, the big young lefty and the big young righty and uh, see what they can do over there. And he had 45 doubles, so it's not like, you know, the wall might rob some home runs, but he's a good enough athlete if he hits it hard off the wall, over the left fielder's head, against the wall. That's a double right there. Hit it into that little corner, maybe it's a triple. So, yeah, Kobe Mayo did absolutely nothing wrong this year. Everything came up Mayo, and just because of younger, not by much, but younger guys like Basayo and Holiday, they kind of... Stole that shine from him a little bit. I'm sure he's not complaining because he's put himself in an incredibly good position going into 2024. You know, the 29 home runs mean nothing if you're walking like 7% of the time and hitting 250. But the kid hit 290 with a combined walk rate at two different levels north of 15%. I think with Mayo, like we can debate about when he finally makes his major league debut and exactly what position he primarily plays but i don't think there's really much of a debate about what kind of player he's going to be at the big leagues this year i think he's going to be a guy who hits for high average hits a lot of home runs hits a lot of doubles uh he's going to get on base a ton again the walks were massive honestly like when the when the biggest negatives the the 
The only thing that people seem to complain about Jackson Holiday and Kobe Mayer this year is that their helmets never fit them. When that's the biggest complaint and the only comment that we get on our Twitter videos when we post videos with Kobe Mayer and Jackson Holiday, um, things are going pretty well in Baltimore. So no steroids because there's no Barry Bonds, you know, <laughs> big heads here. They they need big, smaller helmets actually. Talking about guys that made the leap from Bowie, I know we spent a lot of time talking about Heston Kerstad last week when we recapped Bowie's season. We also talked about his major league debut a little bit, but I do think it's worth taking a moment to recognize what he did during his time with the Tides. After that excellent run with the Bay Sox, he was promoted to AAA and hit really well over 76 games with Norfolk. Batting 298 with an 870 OPS, belted 10 homers, and drove in 32. So, Kerstad, who's been hitting the ball hard consistently at the major league level, was really good with the Tides during his time there this season. Yeah. Like you said, we've talked a lot about him recently, but one thing that I don't know if we touched on too much for me, his time specifically in Norfolk, the thing that stood out the most to me, the power obviously is good. A lot of like dead center power that he showed off there, but the speed like this guy had five triples and one inside the park home run did he have two this year i'm trying to remember or maybe it was like stowers had it inside the park home run then kerstad had it inside the park home run there was a spree of them down there in norfolk at one point this year but i know kerstad had one plus the five triples the speed was electric i mean he's he's faster than i know i expected uh, and yeah harbor park's a bigger ballpark that outf- that outfield we talk about it all the time that center field can get you know, a little, a little big play, very deep play, very wide, but still like Heston Kirsch said, legging out triples on the regular in triple a, that was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. And you know, he's already come up and made an impact at the major leagues. He just hits the ball. He finds a way to put the barrel on the ball, the good part of the bat on the ball, because I know it's very limited sample size, 15 events, his, Average exit velocity is 94 miles per hour. His hard hit percentage is 60%. Barrel percentage, 20%. You keep that up and you're in pretty elite company. I doubt he will, but, you know, he's not going to walk a ton like some of these other guys that we've talked about, but he's not going to strike out a ton either. He just, he likes to swing the bat and he knows how to put the the barrel on the ball, as I said. And yeah, just a great young power lefty to have for the next six, seven years in Baltimore. And you know, we haven't seen him in the field yet. Probably still some work to be done there, but just an impact bat. Let's go back for a moment and talk about some of the guys I mentioned earlier on in the segment. Stowers, Kowser, Ortiz, and Norby all kind of had different seasons. Ortiz, once again, flashed the elite glove work. Battled a little bit of injuries, but was excellent to plate when he was on the field. As he hit 321 with an 885 OPS in 88 games. We kind of thought early on we might see Ortiz in the major leagues more this year. That really didn't turn out to be the case. He had a couple of short stints in the majors, including one where he hardly played at all. Um, I think it was around June. But I think that despite everything, despite not getting the consistent playing time when he went to the major leagues, despite some of the injuries that he had this year, Ortiz had a really successful season. Yeah, I I got some thoughts about both these infielders, specifically Norby and Ortiz. but. Starting with Ortiz, I just think he firmly supplanted himself as one of the top prospects in the system, one of the top prospects in baseball. That bat in AAA, we are Joey Ortiz stands. Uh, we're not going to hide that fact. <laughs> we're very open about it. But at the same time, like I think the bat in AAA this year was better than what I was expecting. And again, I'm very aggressive in my view of Ortiz. I loved when Michael Elias came out, was that around the trade deadline, and said Joey Ortiz is an everyday major league shortstop. And it says something about that, that being in Baltimore as well, potentially one day down the road, my glass doesn't have to say that out loud. Like you don't need to shop your own prospects. These guys shop themselves on the field with their performance. I think it was maybe not even a confidence booster because, you know, Ortiz, I'm sure, you know, maybe that was a weird debut, right? He didn't get all the, the hoopla. He didn't get the video. He didn't get all the the fun theatrics that come with making your MLB debut. And then, like you said, Zach, he didn't really get to play that much. Goes back to AAA. I don't even think he needed that confidence boost from Michael Elias because he proved it out on the field. Like He had an 885 OPS this year, which was almost 100 points higher than his AA OPS last season. So I think if there are any doubts about the bat, they're gone. Um, he simply, I've said this before, I'll say it again, he simply just needed more minor league at-bats because pandemic, the injuries, all of that, he 
got the taste of the majors and if he's still around next offseason because if he is traded I think there is a role, multiple roles for him at the major league level. But if he is traded, it does make a ton of sense because his value is going to be extremely high, I think. But if he's still here in Baltimore next year, he's going to enter spring training, I think, ready to go to earn that roster spot right out of camp. Yeah, I mean, elite defense, we knew that. But the only question that remains to me is, can he elevate the ball in the air a little bit more often? Because if he does, I mean, watch out. I mean, he had a weird year with you know, concussion and oblique and coming up to the majors to sit on the bench and then coming back down and then back and then down. And yet still in 389 plate appearances, he had 30 doubles, four triples, nine home runs, stole 11 bases, which was a career high. I think he was trying to show off that, hey, I can replace Jorge Mateo in every way possible. But yeah, I think he's a stud. And it's easy to forget about him just because, you know, he's ending the year on the injured list. It's unfortunate. You know, he didn't get as much major league time as guys like Westberg. And, and now Kerstad's up. Kowser got his shot. Ortiz never really got that extended look at the major league level. But that's certainly coming next year if he's still around. And I hope he is because, as we said, we're, we're stands. Dive a little bit deeper into Norby for a moment. I made the case on a Patreon-exclusive daily last week that you can make an argument that Norby's season this year is better than his 2022 season, which was excellent. Um, Across three levels last year, Norby went out and hit 29 home runs. This year, that home run total is down to 21 in 138 games compared to 122 last year, but he hit 40 doubles compared to 23 last year. You add in three triples, his batting average was 11 points higher. His OPS was not too far behind where it was a year ago. And he did all of this at AAA. Whereas if you look at Norby's 2022 season, he had some bad luck at Aberdeen, went up to Bowie, went on a tear, and then finished strong at AAA. This year, he gets off to a slow start. But then really from about May 1st on was one of the Tide's most consistent hitters. Yeah, just I know he didn't show off the power that he had you know, 29 last year, like you mentioned, but he still had you know, over 20 home runs this year, 21. And I think early on, just between that, the slow start he got off to this year, the fact that the trade deadline, like everybody is ready to trade Connor Norby, which, you know, we could talk about what his path is or what his path to the major league looks like here in Baltimore, but it seems like a very easy trade piece. So I think because of that, all of that, the depth up in the middle infield in this system, Norby did get overlooked, and I agree that this year, this was his best year. He had a career-high 290 batting average. The 40 doubles is insane. He had 10 stolen bases on top of the 21 home runs and 40 doubles. I, I just think the defense at second base, that was the big question that everybody was asking, and we were asking people, and even guests we were having on the show that were like, I don't really know how the organization views him defensively. Well, I, I mean, maybe it was just a matter of paying attention more, but I thought his defense at second base was much better this year he showed off the range out there in left field he had a couple highlight reel catches out there in left field showing off the range and athleticism i think he took a step forward in 2023 and i feel pretty confident in saying like norby is a guy who in the major leagues whether it's in baltimore or anywhere else uh, he's probably going to strike out like what 25 percent of the time give or take a few percentage points each year but he's going to threaten for 20 home runs every year he's going to hit 30 plus doubles He's going to steal around 10 bags a year. He's going to be a two, two and a half war player most years. In other words, he's going to be a solid major leaguer every single year. He's probably not going to win a batting title or win a gold glove, but he's going to be consistent and give you some defensive versatility. And, you know, like I said, I don't know if that's in Baltimore, but he's going to have a good career somewhere in Major League Baseball. Talk about finishing strong. Over the last month of his season, he batted 351. With a 1057 OPS, 164 WRC plus, walked more than 12% of the time, only struck out 16.7% of the time over his last 114 plate appearances, had nine doubles, a triple, five home runs. Yeah, I mean, he's like a a snowball rolling downhill. He just gets better as the season goes on. And I think he's going to help the Tides in the playoffs this week. And I think he's going to help either the Orioles or... I don't know. Uh, some major league team, like Nick was saying, in 2024, I think he's major league ready. So he can play left field, second base. He's going to hit for average. He's going to hit for power. And he's still developing. So, yeah, very, very good season for him. 
and hats off to him. Talk for a moment about Colton Kowser. Kowser did get major league time this year, and I don't think there's any way around it. He really did struggle to play during his 26 games with the Orioles, but down in Norfolk this year, he was just excellent to play, hitting an even 300s and 937 OPS, 17 homers. He was 62 runs batted in, 18 doubles and a triple. And one thing I think we saw, he made maybe the best defensive catch of any minor leaguer this season down at Norfolk, robbing a home run out in the deep part of center field at Harbor Park. The eye test to me looks like Kowser's center field defense was better this year. Maybe it hasn't improved to the point where we're willing to, you know, declare him an everyday center fielder in the major leagues, but it he looks pretty capable out there. Yeah, I, it was disappointing, I think, just to not see him get more of an opportunity, more run in the major league level, let, give him time to kind of settle in. But he flashed what he was capable of when he was in the big leagues. The walk rate was enormous, like 17% or something during that. It was obviously very small sample size, but still – he had a 175 Babbitt when he was in the major leagues. A lot of hard hit balls, but just right at guys. When he got sent back down, though, he performed well. He went on a, an incredible stretch there after he got sent back down. He's in and near strong as well. I think it's going to be interesting to see what the Orioles do with this outfield situation in the major leagues. Because, you know, right now, just looking at what Kowser did in AAA, though, forgetting about who's here now, who's here next year, or whatever, how this outfield shakes up. Just looking at what he did. He maintained, he's got a 16% walk rate at high A, double A, and triple A over the last two years. He struck out less this year. The power came through this year. That shined. I also agree, like Norby, I think the defense took a step forward. Um, you know, I, I still don't know if he's maybe an everyday major league center fielder, but the Orioles don't need him to be that with Cedric Mullins, hopefully on this roster for many more years to come. And if Hayes isn't around next year, the Orioles want to put Kowser in left field. He's a solid option there. He's athletic enough to cover that extra ground. And if Mullins gets hurt, then you've got a guy in Kowser that you can slide over to center field for a couple of weeks. Like my thoughts just overall on Kowser haven't changed really this season. I'm still a big Colton Kowser guy and he's still got to obviously prove that he can do this at the major league level, but I'm entering next year pretty confident that uh, he's going to take the next step. Yeah, I think, he can be a bridge from a guy like Hayes, who has been, you know, corner outfield, can play center field in a pinch. And the guys like Judd Fabian and Enrique Bradfield, once they get up here and establish themselves, I think he can make Ryan McKenna obsolete on this team, um, unfortunately, but uh, for him. Um, but, you know, he can be that guy that he's your reserve outfielder. And especially when you have options like Hayes, Mullen, Santander, you know, Etc. Kowser, Kerstad. Um, you know, there's other options on their way up as well. I feel like Ryan McKenna is not going to have as firm a spot as he has the past few years, uh, starting in 2024. And Kowser is a big reason why. And yeah, he struggled in his major league debut, but he learned. You know, he learned a lot. He's got to learn to get comfortable in his own skin against major league pitching. And I think he went back down, and he didn't struggle. He had a 103 WRC plus 832 OPS. But you can tell he was working on things that will make him a better major leaguer rather than just a better uh, guy that can put up numbers in the minors because his walk rate went from 16% to 11.3%. Strikeout rate rose again from 26 to 33 But his isolated power also went up by 22 points or 0. 0.022 points. And, you know, he you can just tell that they're working on things that uh, will take an effect next year. Another offseason, another spring training to to really get his feet under him. He'll have a chance to make the, the major league team out of 2024. I don't know how all these guys are going to fit on this 2024 roster. That's a, a subject we will tackle in the offseason, but Kowser's got to firmly still be in the plans. I don't think there's anything that's changed, really. Talking about guys that you're trying to figure out where they fit into the Orioles' long-term plans, Kyle Stowers is in that category. Um as I mentioned earlier, he was did battle some injuries this year, but in 68 games for the Tides, pretty solid numbers, 17 homers, 5'11 slugging to go with an 875 OPS. Like Kowser, Stowers had some time in the major leagues this year, but really struggled and was sent down. We thought we might see him again this year. Nonetheless, that didn't happen. I think what became apparent to us um, – during Stowers' time in the major leagues, the Orioles were not entirely comfortable with his defense. 
Uh, so that's obviously going to be a big check mark for him in his development. But you look at where he stands right now. This is a guy that in a different organization probably has a more extended run in the major leagues this year. How does he fit in? Does he fit in at all for the Orioles plans going forward? I don't, I don't think so. I just, I think with Stowers, it's, it's tough because we talk about all the time, the improvements he's made, right. And they're legitimate big time improvements, but I just always go back to that Eve Rosenbaum interview. And I think that was pretty opening in my opinion about how the organization views Stowers. Uh, I think there were multiple times this year, at least a couple of times where the call up could have been Stowers and it wasn't. Uh, I just think I'm not down on him per se. I still think he's a great player to have in your organization. He's kind of guy like if another team wants, like really is intrigued by Stowers and they want to make a trade for Kyle Stowers, you're not going to sell low on him, obviously. You're going to keep him for good value. But if you get good value from Kyle Stowers, then I'd say like you can trade him and you're going to be okay. Your farm system is going to be all right. Your major league roster is going to be all right. Or if another team really likes Stowers and you can use Stowers to beef up a trade package for a bigger player, I think that would be great too. Uh, but at the same time, I just think Stowers, I'm going to be, my realistic thoughts on Stowers are he's just a really, really good reserve piece. He's a great guy to have in your organization down at the AAA level for as long as you can keep him down there. And in case of emergency, if you need that extra outfielder, he is a powerful left-handed bat. Yes, he's going to strike out, but he can draw walks. He's got light tower power. We know that. And he can come up and give you a couple games if you need him. Uh, again, there's a lot of other organizations have worse options that they would have to turn to in that situation than Kyle Stowers. So again, depth, depth. You need the depth to win championships. And I, I think just Kyle Stowers is just a, just a really good depth piece to have. Yeah, talk about a forgotten player. I was just listing off outfielders that could make Ryan McKenna <laughs> obsolete and just completely forgot about Kyle Stowers. Um, yeah, I agree. I think he's a major league player. I think just not most likely with the Orioles. I I think we know enough about Michael Elias and his front office that they're not going to like, oh, there's no room for him. We got to trade him. We got to get rid of him. No, they'll keep him around. <laughs> there's no reason not to. If you, He's a great, like you were saying, great depth to have. If you, instead of going to, what, Mason Williams, how many times can we bring him up tonight? But instead of having to reach down to bring up someone like that, you can bring up Kyle Stowers, who can hit you a game-winning home run off one of the best closers in the game like he did in 2022. Um, yeah, I think most likely I feel like he is just another piece in a deal for a an, an top-of-the-rotation arm in this offseason. Not the main piece, but not a throw-in either. And, um, yeah, I'm rooting for him. I like the guy. But I just I don't know. I think yeah. there's a, a lot of outfielders ahead of him that are already gotten major league experience and some guys right behind him as well. So it's it's just a really tough spot for a really talented player. Yeah. He's just getting passed. Like there's the guys that are cursed has passed him. Uh yeah, Dylan Beavers is quickly coming up. He had a very strong double A campaign. You got some younger guys as well. Like he's just he's getting passed up and it's it's unfortunate. But I, I do agree. He's still a legitimate player. He's going to get a shot somewhere, but it's I don't think it's going to be in Baltimore at the major league level, at least as a, as a full-time guy. Before we move on from the positional players, just want to note that the Tides had some really good years from guys that are not prospects necessarily, but good quality depth options to put together really good seasons, including Lewin Diaz, Daz Cameron, and Josh Lester. It was a great story earlier this year when Lester got a cup of coffee in the major leagues, and he put together – a fine year for Norfolk by belting 23 homers. Cameron was a solid part of the outfield, a little bit of power and speed. And Diaz held down first base uh, over the course of the season while belting 17 home runs. We'll move on to the pitching staff now, which was a real highlight for this team. The Tides hurlers combined to strike out 1,424 batters, which was second in the International League to only Toledo's 1,470 strikeouts. And you look at this group, there's some really interesting prospects as well as quality major league depth pieces. One of the guys we're going to talk about a little bit later on is Chase McDermott because he is one of the front runners for pitchers of the year. But looking at the non McDermott group of pitchers, what stood out to you guys in Norfolk? A lot. Um, of course, <laughs> this whole thing, but generally though, I did jot this down just to generally speak about pitching in AAA. Norfolk had a team ERA of 4.62 
And I know like that doesn't look great, but that was fourth best in the international league. And only six of the 20 teams in the IL had an ERA under five this year. And I also think, remember, like when looking at AAA numbers, that guys had to learn how to pitch with the ABS, the automatic ball strike system this year. And then it was only in place half the time. You know, the weekend games, it was back to umpires calling games, but the challenge system was in place. So if you're one of these guys like Justin Armbruster, I think typically pitched early in the week and then the weekend game, he's got to pitch ABS one time and then the home plate umpire back to normal the second time. I want to get Justin Ramsey back on or get Armbruster or McDermott, Povich, Watson, these guys we had on before get them all on at the same time who knows but bringing them back and get their direct thoughts about what that was like this year because i think that was an issue i've seen some other quotes that it seemed to be an issue uh for guys this year era kind of up across the board in triple a so i just use that to kind of preface before we like dive into these guys about some of the numbers maybe don't look as great but a lot of the other numbers do for some of these guys yeah, a big adjustment from what you're used to in uh, looking at AAA Norfolk's numbers over recent years where it's like, oh, it's a pitcher's park. It's a more of a pitcher's league. Well, that didn't happen to be the case once they instituted these changes. But yeah, I think it was a successful season overall. Even a guy like Garrett Stallings got up, got 74 quality innings with a five and a half ERA, but more strikeouts than innings pitched, not too many walks. He had some really dominant performances and then some really bad ones, but keeping his name in the mix. Cade Povich, Chase McDermott, Justin Armbruster, these guys getting serious experience at the AAA level is only going to help going into the offseason and into uh, spring training and then the 2024 season. So the Orioles have options, and those options continue to grow on the pitching front from where we were even just a year or two ago. Yeah, I I can start. If we want to talk about specific player first and foremost – I'll throw out Justin Armbruster first. I think this year Armbruster proved that he's going to be a guy, a starting pitching prospect in this organization. Um, he's going to enter next spring in that early battle. I think he's ticketed likely, very, very likely ticketed to go back to Norfolk to begin next year. And But at some point next season, he's going to make his MLB debut, I think. Um, you know, I think he gets... He gets worked in spring training early on like a potential starter, starting pitching option for the Orioles. And eventually we see him at some point. Like I said, he's got he had a couple blow up games, but he gave up. Look at the last three starts. I think he had um, he went seven innings, six innings and six innings in September. Those were three of his last four starts as he's hitting his career high in innings pitch. He dug deeper and went six, six, seven. Um this guy's a workhorse. Uh, I'm trying to do math and talk at the same time, and that was a disaster. Two blow-up starts in AAA, that was it. Five runs in four and two-thirds back on July 6th. He gave up six runs in seven innings earlier this month. So 39% of the runs he gave up in AAA came in two of his 14 outings. I think the secondaries took a step forward this year. The strikeout rate took a huge leap when he went back up to Norfolk. I think this year he kind of cemented himself as a legitimate starting pitching prospect uh, in this organization. And I don't know what the role is going to be in the next level, but I think this offseason I got to get my uh, just an org guy t-shirt made because I'm going to wear that at Camden Yards when he makes his MLB debut. And Justin, I, I need you. I need you to sign that uh, when you do make that debut. Yeah, I mean, people are saying who's going to be next year's Cal Gibson, who was this year's Jordan Lyles. Well. Justin Armbruster, big dude, six foot four, two thirty five, and like you said, just eating up innings late in the season. Uh, could be him, maybe not next year, but sometime soon. Also, kind of reminds me of like a Tyler Wells type of a guy, but hopefully a little more endurance. If Tyler Wells can can eventually <laughs> become a guy that can pitch through a full season, I think Justin Armbruster is already there, and he's gotten some valuable lessons, like you said, at AAA this year and. Yeah, uh, I'm very happy with his season, and he's a, definitely an option to make his Major League debut. Maybe kind of in a similar situation to where Drew Rahm was entering 2023, I could see Armbruster being in that spot. Yeah, I was very pleased with his season as well, and one thing I'll give him big credit for, when he was on our show in the offseason, we asked him, you know, what is an area you want to improve in this year, and he talked about his platoon splits. Uh, he had been very successful between two levels in 2022, despite having kind of lopsided platoon splits, dominant against right-handers, but had some challenges against lefties. This year, he held left-handed hitters to a 221 batting average and a 673 OPS. 
compared to 246 and 732 for right-handers. So he actually managed to be better against left-handers this year without completely uh, struggling against right-handers. He's actually quite effective against both sides of the plate. So I give him credit for that. And we also saw the strikeouts take a big jump when he got to AAA. I don't know that he's a strikeout pitcher long-term, but I get – this isn't a direct comp, but I could see him kind of being a Dean Kramer type with strikeouts where it's not how it's not his bread and butter, but on nights where he's on, he's going to get a surprising number of swings and misses. Yeah, he's definitely more of a, a fly ball pitcher. But, I mean, the home run rate wasn't really bad at all this year. I mean, the home run fly ball rate went down this year. His home run, overall home run rate went down this year. So that, that's a good sign. Yeah, you look at the ground ball rate, it's like 29 30% in the upper levels of the minor leagues. So he's definitely a fly ball guy, but he's got good velo. Like Bob said, he's got great endurance. He can work deep into games, be a multi-inning relief guy. He's a powerful pitcher. He just, that fastball up in the zone, I think that's where he gets most of his swing and miss. Uh, and it's it's a good pitch. Talk about the, you know, it's hoppy. I mean, every All these guys, the top pitchers, the hoppy fastball, the keyword, the key buzzword in Baltimore, he's got it. And it looked really good this year in AAA. So great year for him. We should start calling the uh, Orioles pitching development system the the brewery because they are full of hops. Talk about Kate Povich for a few minutes. And Povich did put together what I think is overall a solid season. You look at the 504 ERA and you might think, well, yeah, it looks like he really struggled. With Povich, it's really just a matter of consistency because he can put together stretches where he is as dominant as any pitcher in this organization, but then he'll have his outings where he struggles with long ball. His command isn't very good. And he's out of there before the fourth inning. Uh, I have to give him a ton of credit though, for finishing the year strong. If you look at his numbers in the months of September, he made four starts, struck out 29 batters in 21 and two thirds innings pits against 11 walks with a two nine one ERA. So after being challenged quite a bit, when he first got to triple a, he really settled in with a reliable arm down the stretch for the tides. It's consistency. You said it like that's what it's got to be here. When he finds that consistency, he's going to live up to that Kyler McDaniel you know, preseason hype that he had. The strikeout rate was insane, over 33% strikeout rate in double A. And the ERA was like just under five, but the FIP was a whole run lower. And the XFIP was like almost two runs lower in double A. You move up to triple A again. A little bit more difficult to assess these guys in AAA, but opponents hit just 192 against him in AAA. He is still striking out guys at a respectable rate, but it, it was the walks. That was an issue, and he wasn't giving up a ton of hits, but it was kind of like a reverse Garrett Stallings, where Garrett Stallings throughout his career has given up a lot of home runs, but he doesn't walk guys. The guys don't get on base against Garrett Stallings, so it's a lot of solo home runs. With Povich, it was a lot of two, three run home runs because he's walking guys that are getting on base against him. But I mean, the strikeouts were insane. The repertoire is deep. I know J.J. Cooper, a shout out to him again, uh, for Baseball America, was at Harbor Park watching Povich the other day and talked about he had good feel for multiple breaking balls. Uh, we know he's, what, five, six, seven pitches in his repertoire that he throws. The only other interesting note I had on Povich, I don't know what this means, if anything. haven't really like broken down his road games by ballparks he was pitching in. I don't know if you guys have a take on this, but uh, Povich at home this year at Prince George's Stadium and Harbor Park. It's combined, I, I think. Uh, at home, Povich had a 3.39 ERA and a 1.16 whip. On the road, he had a 7.39 ERA and a 1.64 whip. And it's about 15 or so, 20 inning difference. So still significant sample size there with those two. But I just thought that was uh, an interesting note there with Povich. I don't know what that means, if anything, but. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because he's a left-handed pitcher. Sometimes they can take a little bit longer to to develop feel for their pitches and their command. I'm not saying he's Max Freed, but if you look at Max Freed's last full season in the minors before he made his major league debut, he had a 5.54 ERA over 92 innings. So it's not unheard of that he could just you know come out next year and and be lights out. And I wouldn't be shocked if that was the case. He's got the stuff. It's just like. That final little piece of the puzzle that is maybe instead of one out of every two games being great and the other one being, you know, not as great, not even close, then maybe he can have like every five, two great ones, two decent ones, and then maybe one blow up. I think that would that would help the uh, the ratio 
a little bit better, but still very excited for the guy. And, you know, it's a little bit closer now who I think is the best pitching prospect in the system between him and McDermott, but, and Seth Johnson, don't forget him, but, uh, he's still in the mix and I still think he's got a long major league future ahead of him. Yeah. The home road splits are interesting. I remember at one point we kind of dove into those. I think it was back early in the season when we noticed that Povich was having problems giving up home runs uh, at Bowie, but it was not happening in Prince George's stadium, which is a home run hitters park. It was happening on the road. So it's interesting that that's what it came down to where his ERA is basically four runs higher on the road than it is at home. I, there's a little bit of Kyle Bradis vibes that I get with Povitz because if I go back to Bradis in 2021, it was a very similar problem where it was the stuff is good and he has nights where he's elite, but it's a matter of consistency. And kind of like Bradis, I think that Povitz will have to start back in the minor leagues next year and probably, you know, he'll have, hopefully, and I, I think this is going to be the case, he'll have the opportunity to develop longer than Braddis had because the Orioles are going to be deeper in pitching than they were in 2022. So I feel like if you can get him a few months down at Norfolk next year, hopefully the situation in the automated ball strike zone is a little more streamlined and a little more consistent, and that can help him get more comfortable against AAA hitters. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. With a lot of these guys – they're going to get extra time. There's no rush to bring them up, right? You're hoping this rotation is going to be the potential starters next year in, in spring camp. There's going to be a lot of them. And hopefully the Orioles, of course, add more. And that affords a guy like Povich to where if you need an extra three months in Norfolk to smooth things out, that's okay. Uh, and I, I think Povich is definitely that. The left-hander with his stuff, his velo, all that combined at Camden Yards, I think he's, he's in a position. He's got to execute, but he's in a position to – have a really fun career here in Baltimore, I think. And we're going to look now at the pitcher of the year race in the Orioles minor league system. And we've identified two guys that we think are probably the top contenders for that award. One of them is Chase McDermott, who we just touched on a moment ago. And the other one is Alex Pham. When you look at the numbers side by side, it's a pretty close call. Pham has a 2.57 ERA to McDermott's 3.10. McDermott struck out 152 batters while walking 68 over 119 or so innings this year. We lost Zach. Oh no. <laughs> I think we know where he was going with it though. Um, I'll start with McDermott. You know, he started in double a was great. 3.56 ERA promoted to triple a was even better. 2.49 ERA. The thing I liked is that his strikeout percentage actually went up by half a percentage point and his walk percentage went down by three and a half percentage points so you know hopefully he's gonna be able to recover from this back injury in time to have a a full spring training next year but even if not i feel like 2024 chase mcdermott will make his major league debut and then alex fam i mean lower level doing it but all the more surprising coming from a, a relief prospect in low a to or from in a ball to you know and one of all of a sudden one of our best starting pitching prospects the year after that and uh yeah it's a really tough decision and we'll we'll announce our decision next week at the live show but is that where you're going with this deck before we lost you yeah so we will announce our decision next week at the live show but the orioles probably are going to announce their decision sometime this homestand if you know history repeats itself we'll probably see the position player of the year award announced as well as the pitcher of the year so when you look at these two guys, um, I'll start with you, Bob. Who do you think has the stronger case overall? I want to say McDermott, just because he did it at the higher level. He has a two and a half ERA at AAA when we've already talked about how the league ERA as a whole is like above five, basically. So I think that's all the more impressive. He's closer to the majors. He's doing it against tougher competition. Um, but that's not to take away anything from Alex Pham and not to say that I, I might not choose Alex Pham uh, this time next week. So we'll see. Yeah, McDermott, I think just from a prospect status standpoint, you know, he kind of entered this year, in my mind, riding this line between starter and relief prospect. And I think he he's no longer riding that line. He is a starting pitching prospect and arguably the top starting pitching prospect in the organization. But I think 
I give the edge to McDermott as well. Just and I think the Orioles do too because you look at some of the counting stats. Uh, I think it looks prettier when they can just pull out for the graphic the the wins, losses, ERAs, and strikeouts, and the fact that he did this at Double A AA and Triple A. I think that's going to help his cause, but it's one hundred percent deserve it if it is him. I mean, the guy gets promoted when he gets promoted to Triple A. Bowie hitters were hitting just one seventy three against him, and we've referenced a couple of times that John Muley article during the year about how his stuff in the zone was almost unhittable, just unbelievable numbers when he was pitching in the zone. The issue, of course, was keeping the ball in the zone. But he moves up to AAA, and batters fared even worse against him. They hit 153 against him. The whip fell from 1.26 down to 1.01 in Norfolk, and the walks were still high, but his walk rate has dropped from 17% in Bowie last year when he came over from Houston after his trade, lowered at the 15% at Bowie, and then down to just under 12% when he was in Norfolk. So... You want to see that improve, but even more, but it improved throughout the course of this year. So that's a, a good sign there with him. With FAM, like in terms of like prospect status, I don't know if any other pitcher, thinking, I'm trying to think up top of my head real quick, but I don't know if any other pitcher in this organization improved their stock as a prospect more than Alex FAM did this year. So in that terms, I mean, tremendous season, but I think in terms of winning this award, it's McDermott. McDermott had what second highest number of strikeouts in the entire organization, the minor league side behind only Kate Povich. Uh, one of the lowest ERAs among guys I had this number pulled out here. Only actually, if you look at the guys who tossed 100 or more innings in the minors this year, only Alex Pham had a lower ERA than uh, Chase McDermott. So these are definitely the top two guys this year, statistically speaking. And I, I do agree. There's a case for Pham to get it, but tremendous years for both guys. I'll uh, avoid giving too much away, and I won't say my preference. Save a little bit of suspense for next Monday night. But the narrative with Fam is so compelling because this is a guy who went from being a relief prospect that you know had some interesting traits, kind of liked his curveball, but didn't really jump out at you one way or the other. But then he goes out this year, and as a starter dominates across two levels and was actually better at double a than he was at high a you look at how he slashed his walk rate when he got to double a despite moving to a higher level of competition with better hitters and a tougher ballpark is really you know an accomplishment for him mcdermott though i give him a lot of credit and i think that there's if there's something you can take away from his season which there's a lot there's a lot of positives but we're now talking about chase mcdermott as a legitimate starting pitching prospect. I think this time last year, we all liked McDermott, but it looks like a little bit of reliever traits, or maybe he's a guy who's a starter, but he's never going to go more than five innings in a start because he's just not going to be able to work through a lineup. But his pitch mix this year just was so much better than it was last year. And I think that moving over this organization, some of the adjustments they made with him and some of the things he talked about Early on this year, I think it was, what was it, when he was on our show, he said he was going to shelve his change up for a splitter. Just the little adjustments the Orioles were able to make with him made a huge difference. And now I think you can look at McDermott as a legitimate pitching prospect, starting pitching prospect. Yeah. I mean, there were even, I remember talking about him earlier in the year when he was going through the stretches of, he had a tremendous stretch where he just wasn't walking guys. And we were like, did he finally figure it out? And then the walks came back. And I think in a major way for like a little three, four start stretch there. And we started saying like the right-handed DL hall, like in this organization now, like, is that where he's trending? Um, I don't, I don't, I think he's kind of shaking that off. And I think the walks will continue to get better with him. Um, and yeah, sh again, one more point on fam. Just shout out to him to this season because like you mentioned his transition to starter from relief prospect. I remember watching his first start of the year when he was down there in Aberdeen. I'm like, why is fam getting the start here? This is a reliever. Like he opener is going to go an inning, maybe two innings. He got shelled. I think he gave it like seven runs. Didn't make it out of the third inning. And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. That's what's going to happen. Why is Daniel Lloyd in this rotation? Why is Alex fam in this Aberdeen rotation? What are they doing? Uh, Alex Pham, after that opening start, gave up one run over his next 24-plus innings. Uh, so 
and he never looked back this year. So proved me wrong. I will gladly eat that after watching his first start. And now you're looking at a guy who he pitched 60 innings in Bowie. He could start next year in Norfolk's rotation, which is mind blowing to think about. Yeah, and I just to say that it is you, you know, we're zeroing in on McDermott and Pham because we think those are the guys with the strongest cases. But if you go down the list of pitching prospects, I think there's a lot of guys this year that probably aren't going to win the award that in prior years, you would have looked at them winning the award as a, a big accomplishment, very deserving and a good thing. So someone like Trace Bright, Justin Armbruster, Juan Nunez, um, Davy Cruz, Daniel Lloyd, you could throw a bunch of names out there of guys who Gene Pinto. put together Gene Pinto is another one who put together really solid seasons across the board that in most years probably put them firmly in the conversation and win this award. But it looks like it's gonna be McDermott or fan, of course, from the Orioles. We'll probably find out later this week. And if you want to find out who we pick, you gotta to come to Checker Spot Brewing next Monday night, October 2nd, for our show at 6 30 p.m. As we did at our live show last year, we will give out our end-of-season awards. We haven't finalized all of our plans yet, but at a minimum, you can expect us to bring back the categories from last year, including Positional Player of the Year, Pitcher of the Year, Manager slash Coach of the Year, and Platinum Glove. Maybe we'll have some other surprises in there for you as well. That will be next Monday night, 6.30 p.m. at Checker Spot Brewing. Don't forget, Checker Spot is now at their new location, 1421 Ridgely Street, not far from Memorial Park at Cannon Yards. Great spot. You're definitely going to want to come check that out. In the meantime, between now and next Monday, check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, slash X. And head over to BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Check out the latest coverage on the Orioles, Ravens, college sports, and more. And while you're there, be sure to hop on the message board and join the discussion with fellow readers of BSL as well as contributors to the site. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On The Verge. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.